Thank you for listening to the Silver Club Podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. All right, everybody, we are back with another Silver Club podcast. Colin, we're working into the summer now and got Bryson DeChambeau lighting up the world of golf. What is going on there? What an incredible achievement. Like he becomes the headline story and follows through with the win. It's sort of like from the Tiger era. You know, you can't hate the player, hate the game. He is... (laughs) He's the one that bulked up like a sumo wrestler and and put on the distance and he's able to control it. And he's hitting you can't make a course long enough for him. It's too, the game is it's it's not a it's not a complete challenge. The the game has officially changed in my mind one one more time. I mean, if you put this in perspective, he was the first player on tour to win with an average driving distance of three over 350 yards. The next player behind him was Tiger Woods back in 2005, who won the Open Championship, averaging 341 yards off the tee. So he's eclipsed that by almost 10 yards in victory. Number one and number two, he he's just he's he's like a long drive champion out there now, and he's hitting sixty over sixty percent of the fairways, which is which is absurd with that much speed. To me, that's amazing. I mean, Tiger at three forty one in two thousand five at St Andrews has to be thought of in the context of a dry summer, a links in the summer, exactly. Win. So there's probably there's four hundred yard drives in there. Um, this was parkland golf in America not long after some rain. Like I did see some nice run out, but nothing you nothing extraordinary. He's done it. He knew precisely what he he needed to do to sort of elevate his club head speed, playing that 5.5 degree driver. Um, and it's it's a tactical advantage. To be that straight with that club is 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 actually quite impressive. And He's rendered it, yeah, he's rendered each hole as a, a, one sort of wet, one short iron after another. It, I think time's going to tell, though, on this experiment overall. Obviously, he, he just captured the Rocket Mortgage Classic yesterday. He has, he has not finished outside the top eight, uh, at least eight, since the restart uh, on shorter golf courses. Now, we're going to get into some longer golf courses where his distance is going to be a monster advantage, uh, namely the majors. TPC at Harding Park for the PGA Championship, winged foot for the U.S. Open. His major distance gap is going to be shown even more there. And it's, I mean, it, it, it's going to make everybody go to the gym. Everybody's going to be uh, pumping some serious iron. The game has officially changed one more time in my book. Well, it goes to show you that um, equipment allows you to and it wasn't always the case to be able to sort of put on this type of weight and just have unbridled swings. And I know Nicholas took a lash at it, but and he was an aberration. I guess in many ways that's what Bryson is doing now. The idea that you can control the ball at that distance at a 340 carry at a 350, 60 yard drive, uh, in relatively relatively narrow fairways and playing corridors is in, is incredible. And I, you know, I agree that like 
is this is his um is bulking up in the in his best long-term health interests probably not like he almost needs to like not have some type of uh, health issue between now and the majors yeah i mean how does that change your mindset though as a, as a coach of a collegiate team like yale i mean what will you guys do you think you might do anything different well i've always thought that this type of bulking up wouldn't necessarily you know would be counterproductive in some ways yeah you might hit it a little further but carrying your bag walking 36 holes your 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 ability to to rotate, to twist, to create that sort of X factor from your shoulder turn to your hip turn. Um, so it's just amazing to me that he, in addition to just absolutely bulking up and getting max weight, max strength, he swings at it max. And so I do worry about, I do worry about sort of his knees and joints and ligaments and that, you know, that's, it's not a formula for long, for decades of success it's there is something a little bit of a of a sort of of a sort of seasonal fad that might be going on the way a football player might bulk up for season and then have a sort of downtime i wonder it's going to be exhausting keeping up that weight without trying if he went yeah, back just right that's a lot of diet, food it's a lot of food it's a lot <laughs> of energy i mean it just is but it's going to be a condensed season and he's young and people shouldn't forget that this kid won the U.S. Amateur and he won the NCAA championship in the same, in the same year. And, and that list includes Nicholas, Mickelson, Woods. Like he, he kind of came with a lot of hype and he's six wins already. That's ahead of schedule for anybody on the PGA Tour. And it feels like he's just starting to get going too. Right. Leading and driving distance uh, for the week. And his his putting strokes gained putting he was second in strokes gained putting and there was a lot of talk um, also about his proximity stats to the hole. Well, there they basically he broke shot link <laughs> because because he was driving the ball all the way up next to the greens. Uh, anything inside of thirty yards to the edge of the green automatically counts as an approach shot. So his long drives on the par fours and. It, it kind of artificially uh, makes the the stats kind of weighs it down a little bit. So um, it, it, it'll be interesting to see how Shotlink itself will evolve from this because it, it will have to. Um, he, he's just he's just over dominating these places. I mean, 570 yard par fives, driver eight iron, nine iron. Uh, granted, they were getting some roll and it was warm and you know it's it's in the summer, but but still it's. Um, it's a monster advantage every time they put the grid out there of all the balls that were hit on a certain fairway from a player. Bryson was just, you know, it was he was so far ahead. I mean, essentially, a lot of what uh, Tiger did when he jumped out, he was so far and ahead in that realm. And uh, Bryson now, uh, the, the, the next step for him is a major championship now. And it will be interesting to see how he handles all that and see if he can take advantage of it and continue on right like it's we've seen exorbitantly long hitters like young Cameron champ as an amateur at Aaron Hills like they come along in college Brandon Matthews but to to be able to like keep that together for 72 holes and and just keep driving under birdies after birdies is, is that is amazing I mean and yes, the Detroit Golf Club was a relatively short, easy course by 
PGA Tour standards, you're right about like maxing out at Harding Park or Max Wingfoot this fall yep. or what he's going to be able to do to right second shots on on the par fives at Augusta. <laughs> like, cause you know how it is. You get that, you turn it over on certain holes on two and you carry it far enough. You get the speed slot, you get the downslope. the, you know, he's going to have such an advantage at up there in Boston at TPC Boston, where you fly it far enough and you sort of get the, uh, the carom forward. That's definitely, that's definitely out there. Um, I, I think the other thing is, I, I do. I do hope we, we can. This will lead to some conversations about rolling back the ball, with the understanding that it isn't to, uh, you know, diminish Bryson's advantage. If anything, it, it may help it. But we cannot have this. These golf courses. We, we, we're going to need essentially entirely separate category of golf courses if they have to be seventy seven hundred yards. That's not the, the solution. Just can't be let's put on another couple hundred yards onto this golf course that cannot be, we've reached the point where I think everybody gets that this is, there's an actual element of it's, it's, it's absurd to do this (laughs) to these courses. It is. It's, 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 I think, you know, they don't really necessarily have to roll back the ball. I think maybe it's just a matter of just, let's make it curve more. I mean, if you, if you hit it a little off center, let's make the ball, Let's make it curve a little bit more. So you have to be super precise. I mean, even more precise than you are right now with that type of speed. And and I think that the, the ability for the golf ball to curve, obviously, if you have more swing speed, you're going to have more curvature of the golf ball if you're a little bit off. So, you know, if you're going to, you know, I'm not stopping somebody from swinging 130 miles an hour or whatever, but but there should be some sort of golf ball penalty if you're not if you're not spot on at that speed. Uh, then, then there should be it, it would help level the playing field, I would think, just a little bit. Just get the ball to, to curve a little bit more, but whatever. That's that is not going to happen. Uh, things are not going backwards, and I guess we'll just have to live with it. Now, talking about this, this Rocket Mortgage Classic in Detroit, uh, one of your former players actually got a start there, uh, Mr. James Nicholas. So exciting. I had a schedule, he was, uh, the beneficiary of a of a corporate of a sponsor I'm sorry, of a sponsor's exemption, and in teeing up, he became just the fourth Ivy League golfer to play on the PGA Tour in 50 years. Really, to, to give you an idea of how rare that is, since 1970, from President Nixon to the present, eight uh, the the uh, U.S. presidents have a combined have a combined eight ivy league diplomas since then and so twice as many uh diplomas as pga tour players or st- players to play on the pga tour that's unbelievable who, who are some of the others i know bob heinz went to yale so he's without question the one he 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 played on the tour most of the stretch from 99 to 2010 he had 155 starts and made 60 cuts unbelievable putter i remember yeah uh, he in 2010 he had a very he had about a about a three footer to force a playoff at, at the Reno Tahoe and he missed it finished second uh, played the used that to play the following week made the cut but then um, had he had reached his uh, he had reached the point when his kids were a certain age and you know he was nearly 40 and he called it quits after that but uh, there was Peter Taravainen class of 78 from Yale he played on the 
the European tour, American tour for a little uh, over in Asia. He had a sort of lengthy pro career with two European tour wins and right. played played in the majors. And otherwise, after them, it's Peter Williamson, who was a very good player from Dartmouth, class of twelve. He got two starts as an amateur at, at Doral and and uh, Memorial in thirteen, and he played the Puerto Rico event. Uh, as a pro in 17, missed you know he missed the three cuts he played in. So, not since Bobby Hines has an Ivy League golfer made a cut. Um, that, that's so it though. So you got three Yales and Yaleys and a Dartmouth player. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so uh, James, it, it was it was it was so much fun to to root for him. He he opened with a 70, two under on Thursday. He would have needed he would have needed a 69 on Friday. Um, irons and putter kind of let him down, but. It actually, I texted one of his, uh, a kid who recently graduated, who was his teammate, and it seemed, knowing how good he is, uh, but also knowing sort of just how good the tour is, seeing where he finished and seeing all the players in front of him just makes you just marvel at the depth of the and the ability of the tour. It's unreal. And it was, a, almost- and it was a cool story, too. His, his father, Steve Nicholas, who's... What is he the, uh, the the surgeon for the or the team doctor for the New York Jets, if I'm not mistaken? Um, am this I right? Is a great story. Yeah. Well, so um, James's grandfather, uh, Stephen's father, was the was the was the Jets team doctor in the '60s and '70s in the in the Joe Namath era, the great era of Doctor James Nicholas. So his son Stephen is a leading orthopedic surgeon. Uh, you know. A, friend of the outpost club member and just an, just an overall great guy. And, and so his 60th birthday was Wednesday of last week. Um, and James, you know, obviously could have hired a, a pro caddy or a, or a club caddy, but uh, Steven got the call and I couldn't imagine a better father son week than they had celebrating his 60th birthday, James's first start uh, definitely an emotional thing. And, and I want to—I just want to shout out that Stephen, who played uh, football and baseball at Harvard, uh, has been uh, very gracious in, in sporting the, the Yale blue and wearing the Y in all of his activities as a caddy. He—he he likes telling people that, you know, 40 years after you graduate Harvard, you've arrived when you're caddying on the PGA Tour. <laughs> uh, but by the way, Stephen operated. Uh, what ties into your to your podcast is um, Stephen actually operated on um, Jim McLean, and Jim McLean has always been very gracious to James and is with and has helped uh, has helped played a role in his wow development. How about that little correlation there? That little tie in that was that's something. And the only the other thing I just people i know it's been great that he's been james has been getting this attention you know this past winter was really the first time he ever had a full off season to dedicate himself to golf he you know he graduated at the end of may in 19 uh played uh you know all through the summer and fall and then eventually got his corn Ferry tour card in uh later in later in the fall and then went spent the whole winter his very first ever just uninterrupted winter to work on his game. And a lot of people saw that in that um, when the corn Ferry tour resumed, he went to that Monday qualifier for the first tournament back. And there was 135 people for four spots. Ouch. Uh, and he shot 61 and 
beat the beat the entire field by five strokes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so he so he should move up in the in the reshuffle rankings whenever that happens. And uh, yeah, be, best of luck to to James and and his pursuit of that. And we uh, we we had him back on uh, back in December, episode twenty four on our Silver Club podcast. Take a a listen to that. We had James on there as well as. Uh, Ryan French, who goes by the the Twitter handle Monday Q Info, man, he's uh, he's got a ton of followers there too. But uh, check out James episode twenty four, and also right now enjoy this new podcast. We had Jim McLean on recently and talking about his new book, Build Your Swing. Very very excited to have Jim on and listen to all his great stuff. And Colin, uh, we'll have more stuff coming up soon. Talk to you soon, Steve. You be well. All right, Colin, but before we get to this great podcast with the teaching mind of Jim McLean, I just wanted to really quickly tell you about our Silver Club Golfing Society. Just like everywhere, we've been a little slow at getting back up on our feet, but our second half of the year is going to be tremendous. We're going to all sorts of cities near you, Dallas, Chicago, Denver, Atlanta, playing places like Trinity Forest and Colorado Golf Club, just to name a few. We've got a, just a fun, fun schedule of architecturally significant golf courses that you'd want to travel around to and get a chance to play. These are some major championship USGA venues, and you can have a chance to hit shots that matter in our competitions. Our membership continues to grow even in our downtime as people want to be involved in a great competitive golfing society. Take a look at our website silverclubgs.com on the web, as well as all of our social media sites on Instagram and Twitter at Silver Club Golf. We're also on Facebook, and we pop our head into LinkedIn at times as well. So take a peek at us on there and get to know what we're all about. Also, this is a great chance to remind you to subscribe to our ever-growing podcast, and we've had some tremendous guests. We've had the great teaching minds of Bob Toski. Boyd Summerhays and Bob Ford, or some of the great characters in the game like Eamon Lynch and Jerry Foltz. We just love having all these people that you listen to and read their articles and get you tied in with this great game that we all love. Finally, just wanted to thank all of our sponsors of the Silver Club Golfing Society, the Dunhill brand, the Winston Collection, Turtleson, Torch Eyewear, and the Leith Silver Company. Hop on our website to our drop-down menu. You can see all the links to all these great companies. Again, silverclubgs.com. And we thank all of our sponsors of our Golfing Society. We just can't thank you all enough for everything you do for us and all of our members. All right, it's time to connect you now with Jim McLean, the great teaching mind who has helped countless numbers of players at all of his schools that he has all across the country and around the world. And he's going to talk to you a little bit about his new book as well, Build Your Swing, Position Teaching in the Modern Age. I have to say that this podcast was recorded as part of the Silver Club Golfing Society and Outpost Club book talks recently through Zoom. And we had a lot of participants on this and it was just a great time getting to know Jim and all of his teaching philosophies. So I hope you enjoy this great podcast. Have a listen. Thanks everybody for joining us today. We've got a 
a wonderful guest, a, a man who's got a, such a wealth of knowledge. And if you don't learn something today, you're not paying attention. Uh, Jim McLean, world-renowned coach, owner of the number one golf school in America. He's a club designer, a course designer, noted speaker, and author of 15 golf books, including the one we're going to talk about today, Build Your Swing, Position Teaching in the Modern Age. Uh, Jim, you've amassed such an impressive resume over the years. I, I spoke with one of your protégés, who's now Mario Guerra, who's the head pro now at Quaker Ridge, where you were the head pro in the Met section in New York. Uh, amazing golf course there. And he said the biggest takeaway he, he got from you in working for you and, and at your schools was that your work ethic is so strong. You work your tail off every day. Tell us what drives you and what has driven you all of these years to amass the resume that you have. Well, Steve, like you, you know, I was uh, a young player and I, and, you know, enjoyed the competition and playing and had a love for the game. And <clears throat> uh, I don't know what absolutely drives somebody. I, I mean, I don't work every day, but I have, uh, you know, jotted down a few notes just about every day and, and amassed uh, some, some books th through, the, through the time. I've enjoyed the teaching. I, I never really got in the game to teach. I was 100% focused on playing. I grew up in Seattle. I, uh, I ended up going to, um, had a four-year scholarship at the University of Houston and uh, played down there in the old days. We have great players that I played with, guys that won all four majors and uh, played a lot with Crenshaw and Kite down there and we became very good friends. Uh, after a few years of playing professional golf, I got into the um, uh, teaching. I missed the tour school. It's pretty depressing and uh, ended up going up to New York. Uh, Jackie Burke helped me a lot down in Houston. He became a great friend of mine. Jackie ended up doing golf schools with me at, at all of my uh, private courses. Well, I was at three courts in New York, um, Sunningdale, Quaker Ridge, and then Sleepy. And then we ended, he came up and did golf schools with me. And then when I was at Doral, he did golf schools with me there. And then at PGA West, he did schools with me there. Um, and then, uh, Steve, you know, like you have been in the playing mode, you know, I knew all the guys really well. I played with them all. So when I started coming out to the range, I was at Westchester country club to start, we had a tour event. So it was easy for me to go on the range and talk to guys. And they were asking you, as you know, everybody is looking for a lesson. And, um, so I had a big advantage there. And then it also at, in New York, I met Ken Venturi early my first year at Westchester, he stayed with one of the members there, Franny Santangelo, who became a great friend, was a great friend of mine. He helped me so much. But Franny stayed, I mean, Venturi stayed with Santangelo. And then I got to go out and stay with Kenny out in Palm Springs and, and then down in Florida when he was there. So, you know, I played a few hundred rounds with Venturi. Uh, he did 35 years with CBS Sports. You know, again, once again, it was just an entree onto uh, the teaching uh, the teaching part of the game. Well, you've, you've been able to hang around and learn from so many great players. I guess maybe you could say that all of these great players and their work ethics maybe just kind of uh, put it on you as well. You just kind of learn by osmosis in a way by hanging around with these great players. You mentioned you went to college at University of Houston. Your roommate was none other than PGA Tour winner and the late Bruce Litsky. Yeah. Well, Bruce was a guy who didn't have to work too hard at golf. You know, so when we talk about great golf swings and great players, uh, Litsky's name doesn't come up too often, but he was number one in driving nine times on the PGA Tour, and he was always in the top five in GIR. 
and he just hit one shot, Steve. Uh, he just simplified golf. I learned a lot about driving from Bruce just from playing with him. And he would stay with us when he was at the Honda and then at, at uh, Doral each year, we would spend a lot of time. Um, and he just, he had a simple way of driving. He thought, you know, the driving, we are on a flat piece of ground, you get to tee it up every time. And if you just play the same shot and you had the same routine and do the same thing all the time, um, he'd aim down the left side of every fairway and try and fade it to the middle. Sometimes he'd cut it too much and be in the right side of the fairway. And then he just said when he hit a horrible slice, it would be in the right rough or the right bunker or something, but he didn't hit it off the planet. And, uh, uh you know, his whole game was kind of fashioned that way. Uh, Bill Rogers was another one of our roommates at school who won the British Open. And he played that little fade. Also, John Mahaffey, I lived with, played the little fade. We all kind of copied Ben Hogan, a weak grip. And, you know, that was the big thing. It still is in Texas. Well, I, I know that you've had such a, a great career playing. You played, uh, you played in the Masters. You've played in the U.S. Open two times. I mean, maybe a lot of people don't realize what a great player you were before you became this golf school and golf instructor extraordinaire all across the world. Um, what point in your life did you really shift your vision for, from a tour pro mindset to one that wanted to really get out there and, and pursue at being, you know, the best teacher in the world? Yeah. Well, after I worked up in New York I, and I, we'd go down in the winter, there was a Florida winter tour way back then where a lot of guys, uh, good, really top, well, not top players, but good tour players showed up and played some in the winter. Um, played, I played those and then the PGA had a winter series and I went to the tour school one more time. And um, I actually, I finished second in the, in the Eastern regionals we played in up in Tampa and then the finals, you know, I missed again and it was, uh, you know, I just figured that's it. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to really, I'm going to really focus on being first a head professional in New York. And I wanted to give you a top club to get a great job. Uh, so my mind wasn't being on being a teaching professional so much, although I was teaching a lot of really good players up there and some tour players, but uh, I got offered the job at Doral later on. And, you know, after I was at Sleepy Hollow, I, well, I did Quaker Ridge and Tamarisk in the, in the desert. Right. So I did two jobs and then, then Sleepy Hollow, which was, you know, phenomenal job up in, in New York. And then um, I got offered the job at Doral. And I did both of those jobs for a couple of years, but it was too much. You know, Doral got to be a really big job. And I decided to go ahead and do that. Then it was really full time because, you know, like you are up in New Jersey, we could still play in the Met section. We had good players and a lot of events that we could play. And so you still kept your game pretty good. But when I came down to... Florida, you know, section's not the same. Uh, you had to play, you know, now's when the guys are playing. It's 100 degrees out. And it's, you know, 95% humidity. <laughs> it wasn't like playing up in, in at Wingfoot or something. So um, I, I didn't enjoy that that much. And I, I just, and also I had my two boys. So we'd take off in the summer and do things. Uh, when you're a club pro in New York, it's long days. I teach till really I was teaching a lot of outside people. I did those after hours, basically from five to nine. So I would te really teach, go from early morning to late most days and then play on Mondays. So, you know, there was no time, <laughs> but when I went, came to Doral, 
you know, you're in the winter, the, the days are over at five or five 30 cause it gets dark yeah. and you know, it's a much easier actually deal. And then I can have the summers pretty much off. Yeah. That's, that's not a bad deal being a club pro in the South and a very good thing. Uh, who is your biggest influence growing up and coming up and when you were playing all these great events and in college and, and playing professionally? Yeah. Well, I had, um, as a junior, I started winning a lot of events up in the, you know, my area of the, of the world. And I, my dad sent me when I was 16 to Al Mengert, who had worked for Claude Harmon at Wingfoot. He was a Walker Cup player. He had a couple, three runner-ups on, in, on the PGA Tour. He didn't win, but he was a heck of a player. He was a big influence on me early. And he's the guy that told me about the Northeast, about going up to New York, uh, what that life was like compared to what the PGA Pro does in the, in the West, which is a 12-month deal job. And he told me that, you know, up at Wingfoot or those type of clubs, you could have a lot of time off to keep, you know, continue to play. So that was always in my mind a little bit, I guess, from, from Al. But he was a fine player, and he, he showed me some really cool stuff, really interested me in Claude Harmon and, Wink, and uh, Tommy Armour. He also worked for Tommy Armour at Boca Raton. Uh, so he had a really cool background uh, and really kind of piqued my interest in teaching. On the teaching side, when you shifted gears there, you obviously built this big brand. And I, I really consider you one of the certainly one of the pioneers, if not the pioneer in golf teaching brand building. Where did you learn that from or where did you understand that concept of, of really growing and expanding all that from? Well, you, you you build your your brand or in, in golf by succeeding by having people get better and over a long period of time. A lot of young guys, young guys that teach for me now, they want to be a top one hundred teacher, best in state right away. But it takes time, and and you got to develop some players. Up in the Northwest, I uh, I worked with uh, a girl named Margaret Platt who ended up making the Curtis Cup team, and made the LPGA Tour, and was a first team All-American. And then George Zeringer, I worked with, who started winning a lot of tournaments up there. And then later on, uh, you know, I still work with George, but he made the Walker Cup team. So, were, you know, you get the players. And Kenny Baxt won the, uh, the United States Mid-Amateur when I was working with him. So you build that area, you know, build in New York. And then plus in New York, we had all the magazines. So I had Golf Magazine. I, I, well, first I started with the Met Golfer and then Golf Illustrated. And then golf magazine, and then later golf digest. But you don't just leap into being, you know, a well-known teacher. Plus, it was good timing because I went. On, I was on the Golf Channel from the start, from the get-go. Um, Joe Gibbs and Arnold Palmer hired me to be on the Golf Channel starting in 1995. So I had a nice 10-year run with the Golf Channel, and you're on exposure. And it was just a lucky time, really. Right. Good, good exposure, good timing and, uh, and great instruction and knowledge. Uh, reading through your book a little bit, we're going to get into swing theory here in a second, but you had a story in there about Keegan Bradley. Uh, talk about Keegan's meteoric rise, really, from when he first saw you to when he eventually won the PGA championship and moving forward. Keegan was living with a guy, some of, the, some of you might know John Curran, who was a good tour player he had a little injuries but I worked with John since he was 16 and he, Keegan was living with him they were both northeast guys from Vermont and and Massachusetts 
they were living up in Orlando playing the, uh, he just got out of school from St. John's University and he, he uh, wanted to work on his golf swing. John suggested to come see me and he came to see me. He was struggling on the Hooters tour actually at the time. Yeah, you said he was driving a Ford Focus with duct tape on the mirrors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The mirrors taped on was a Ford Focus. He had no money. He was really struggling and he wanted to change his swing. And that's what he told me. He said, I need to make changes. So I gave him a couple, I'll tell you what I did. He had a huge move off the ball and he had a big spine tilt away from the target. Uh, and so I had him, you know, tilt his shoulders more, try to keep his head steadier. It still moved and tried to move his hip line away from the target to the right for a right-hander moving away. So I gave him a little idea of sliding his hips to the right so he could get his body kind of lined up. I call it his spine angle lined up inside his right foot instead of having his body over kind of a flat shoulder turn. He had gigantic hooks um, when I when he first started. And so I said, hey, man, this this might take a while if you really want to do it. And he he said, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna make I'm gonna do the work. I'm gonna make these changes. I need to get better. So that got his his arms up higher and got his club face not shut. And three weeks later, uh, I didn't know if I'd ever hear from him again, but three weeks later, he, he called me and he won a Hooters event, which was $30,000, which at the time was a enormous amount of money for him to, to do. And then we, from then we started working. A year later, he got on the web.com tour and then, and then he finished 14th on the web.com. We had one interesting story when he was uh his first few months on the web.com, he came down around June, I'd, or maybe probably May. Uh, and, and we sat down, we're talking. He said, man, he said, Jim, I can see that I'm better than these guys. I think I'm better than these guys. I said, oh, really? Why do you think that? He said, well, you know, I'm playing with them. I can just see, I think I'm better than they are. I said, well, have you ever led a tournament? And he goes, uh, no. I said, well, have you ever led, do you think after nine holes after the for Thursday morning, have you led? No. And he said, and I said, well, what makes you, you know, they're kicking your ass every week. What makes you think you're better? And he, he said, well, then he kind of, we kind of got to the bottom of it. He said, well, I'm really trying to make cuts. And you know what that's like, Steve. <laughs> so he had his mind on the, on the cut, cut line. So he would just barely make the cut or just barely miss the cut. And you know what that's like. Um, so I, said, <laughs> I said, well, let's, let's see if you can lead a tournament, even after, the front nine, the first day, you got to get in the, in the mix. You got to, you know, try and, you know, use your best game on Thursday, forget the cut. Anyway, the next week, you know, that next tournament, whenever that was, he shot 61 the first day and uh, got the lead and he finished third in that tournament. And then that kind of got him going. Then the next year he got on the PGA tour. I don't know if we want to go that far that's fit this fast, but I was with him in Dallas when he won the Byron Nelson, which was unreal, $1.1 million and a trip to the Masters. And we had a big, you know, it was just at a, we had a big dinner and the, the owner of the restaurant recognized him and they gave us a room and all the girls came in and they're all taking pictures with Keegan. And it's like, um, like a, nobody even wanted, to, you know what it's like, Steve, nobody wanted to know you, but as soon as you went to her, you're in a different league. Yeah. Wow. I, I don't know that I'm, I know about finishing second. I don't know about winning that much, but uh, anyway, uh, the, um, 
So you've dealt with and interacted with so many great players all over the uh, all over the the world and and over your time from Sam Snead to Gary Player to I mean all the legends of the game. Who do you think of the from the player standpoint? Who do you think taught you the most? Well, it was probably Venturi because he was really mentored by Byron Nelson. They developed a very close relationship. Uh, and he worked a lot with Byron, but he also played a lot with Hogan and he idolized Hogan. He wore the same Hogan cap. He dressed in the grays and whites and those colors. And uh, he loved Hogan. So he, he shared with me a lot of ideas that Byron told him and, uh, and ideas that he got from Hogan. So that was pretty priceless information. I know. And I devoured the Hogan writings, the books, and I, was able to watch Hogan play when I was at Houston. I uh, watched him play in the, in the uh, Houston Open that was played at Champions. I watched him practice at Champions and play with Jackie and Demerit out there. Uh, so, you know, just getting to watch Hogan hit the ball. He was an older guy then, uh, didn't seem that old to me now, but he was in his late fifties, I guess. And, and uh, man, he could still hit it. I watched him play with uh, around with John Mahaffey. He was one of my roommates at college. And, uh, you know, we didn't say anything to Hogan, but actually there was almost nobody out there. We just walked around with a few of us, the champions, watching him play. But then um, Venturi would tell me lots of really cool things he did with Hogan. Like one thing for the viewers out there, the guys on, he, he told me that Hogan would go to the side of, the, of a lot of tees and tee off with the ball above his feet. And, and Venturi would do that a lot. So he'd get that more shallow swing with a driver I really never heard anybody talk about that, but I've done that. I did that with Lenny Matisse quite a bit. Lenny was kind of steep. So, you know, you go to the side hill and, uh, I mean, you know, it's good to go to side hills for a lot of things, but mm -hmm. for driving, it's, it's really good. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. Uh, it really gets us into swing theory in a way. Right. Um, explain to our listeners if I know you were such a pioneer, of video instruction and you were one of the the first to to if not the first like i said to get really involved with that and use that in your instruction for all of our participants on our in our zoom meeting right now what are maybe two or three things that the people at at home can do to with their smartphones what's what are a few good things for them to to work on and be able to use their video camera on their phone in a, in a yeah. simple but effective way yeah, well, a lot of things can be messed up or you can hurt yourself by how you videotape and you can get the wrong idea, for example, with swing playing. Um, I worked with a guy named Carl Wel Welty who was maniacal with getting the right angles. So I, we filmed exactly the same way. I've done it for 45 years, filming the way we film straight down the target line. Well, other people do it other ways. doesn't really matter if where you do it as long as you do it the same way. However, using a, an iPhone and, and watching yourself swing, you still can learn things, how your feet work, and you can watch head movement. Uh, but from the face-on angle, we like to go straight at a 90-degree angle from the golf ball so we can see where the ball is positioned. Mm -hmm. I like to film up at chest height because that's how I teach. Some people put the camera down at you know, hip mm -hmm. line or, or down lower, but it's just not the way I look at a swing and it's not the way most people look at a swing. And we also did that from down the target line, a little higher up. Uh, 
than a lot of teachers do, but that's the way we do it. And, and, and maybe you want to ask a question there. Steve. Well, well, should the camera be on the, on the target line where the golf ball is or more where the hand line is? Right. Well, a lot of teachers go on the hand line. We, we go right down the target line. That means we put a, um, a camera and right down where the ball is and where the person's aiming. So we only have three points to look at. Mm -hmm. And when we film on the golf course, it makes it easy to film on the golf course. The other thing that filming down the target line allows you to do, you can do it other ways, but down the target line, you can see where the ball starts and you can see the curve on the ball. If you put the ball, the camera inside, you can't really see where, you know, precisely where the ball starts. So what is the ball doing? Of course, is a huge thing. Say John Jacobs was probably the most famous for the things that you and I have done, Scott, uh, Steve, with, with, um, you know, teaching, like what is the ball doing? And then we kind of go back from, from that to swing plane and body movements, body motions, body angles. But obviously we, we need to know what the ball's doing to be an effective teacher. Okay. All right. That's, that's good. Now in, in your book, there's a lot of great illustrations and I know all of our participants are going to, if they don't have your book now, they're going to go grab your book, but so many great illustrations in there describing all of these different positions. And I really enjoyed looking at that. We talked about Keegan Bradley for a second. And when we think about Keegan Bradley, the first thing that comes to mind is how he kind of tilts his head when he looks at his putts. And I, I can imagine that has a pretty big influence and in what your eye dominance is. Describe maybe how our listeners, if, uh, if they don't know how to test for a left eye dominant uh, person versus a right eye dominant person and how that influences their swing. If you can explain that a little bit. Well, you can just hold up your fingers and, mm -hmm. and look through your, your eyes, shut mm -hmm. one eye and shut mm -hmm. the other eye. And then when, when, the object moves and you know, to your other eyes, the most dominant, but a left eye dominant player like Jack Nicholas or Hogan or tiger, they have the ability to turn their head away and, and turn their head a lot. Like you can see uh, Jack Nicholas preset his head pretty good away from the target. And so did Hogan. Um, and if you're left eye dominant, which most right handers are right eye dominant, but if, if you're left eye dominant and right-handed, it gives you a chance to rotate your chin further away and helps facilitate uh, a bigger turn. The guys that are seriously right eye dominant, say like Ben Crenshaw would come to mind for me. I played a lot with Ben. You know, he had a quite a big move off the ball in order to, to really load up. And the other thing is maybe you can think of Annika Sorenstam or Henrik Stenson who would look off the ball. There's a lot of others that Hal Sutton and, mm -hmm. and Elkington that they look off the ball before they hit it. You know, we always used to think, well, that's, you shouldn't do that. But then Furick and there's a number of other guys and girls who do that who are phenomenal ball strikers. Mm -hmm. So as a teacher, I think we certainly have to be aware of eye dominance and, and the fact that there's these different head movements mm -hmm. when we teach. And then some of these great players are doing, you know, the opposite things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with their head. No, that's, that's, that's very interesting for sure. Um, and how that, yeah, I just, uh, you think of, of Keegan and how that, how that works with his eyes. Uh, you, you mentioned, well, we, we talked about video and you using video and being the pioneer really of, of video. Do you use, I mean, currently now, are you using TrackMan or FlightScope or the launch monitors? And how much are you using that at your schools and in your personal teaching? 
Yeah, well, I think the, the, the video is the, the greatest thing, but close second is the track, man. It's been great. Uh, I used it today when I talked to you before the show that Brad Faxon was down today and a really good player that he brought with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and we use the track, man, today. Uh, so that, that quantifies a lot of things you can see. I think as a teacher, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm the human track man with my eyes. I mean, I can, I can look at what's happening to the golf ball and come very close every time to what the track man says, but it's great to have the information. Very difficult to see if you're hitting up or down on the ball with a driver, for example, exactly. And that shoots out that number every time. And it's, it's really interesting for our students to see the information. I know in the modern society, the young, younger people, they love seeing more of the, the, uh, the graphics that we can shoot, shoot up on the, on the TV or on the, on the iPad. Most of my teachers are using the iPad right now. So I, I think that's, and, and then we're using body track or, or, you know, some kind of force plates to, you know, sometimes that's a fun thing to put up and see where the pressure is. And you can use that for, all, you know, all types of shots. And we see that on a short iron, that you're, you're barely shifting weight just a little bit. But then when we look at a driver and we, we've tested the best players in the world, they're, they're moving pressure or you say weight into their back foot, maybe 80, 90% um, uh, move loading up because everybody's hitting the ball, absolutely hammering the golf ball right now. I did want to mention one thing before we, we forget it because you and I have both hit the first tee shot at Augusta and um, of all the shots in golf, no matter if it's Roy McIlroy or Jack Nicklaus or Brooks Kepka or whoever it is, I don't think you ever forget the first tee shot at Augusta. And Jackie Burke gave me, I asked him for a tip. Uh, and I'm sure you did the same thing, Steve, you know, mm-hmm. trying to get, you know, you're going to be really nervous on that tee shot. Mm-hmm. And I asked Jackie, who won the Masters, I, I said, give, give me one good idea on that first tee shot, Jackie. I know I'm going to be really nervous. And he said, he didn't even immediately, he said, take the longest backswing of your life. So I thought for a minute and I said, uh, why would I do that, Jackie? And he said, so you can at least get it halfway back. And uh, (laughs) so, Steve, you hit that tee shot. I'd like to know what you were thinking on that tee shot. Yeah, I I wasn't thinking that. And I don't think I finished my backswing because I hit it in the right trees. So uh, that... (laughs) I didn't time that up too well. Luckily, made a par. And you, don't, you don't forget it, though, do you? Got on my way. It's, uh, it's certainly a, a nerve-wracking time. And let's get into the book just a little bit. Uh, I, I looked through this book, and it is, it, it's spectacular. Your 15th book. I, I don't know how you find more things to write about, but you do. Uh, <laughs> you, talk about, you talk about some of the, the death moves in the swing, and that's a lot of the, a lot of the framework of, of a lot of the, the sections if there's uh, two of your the top quote unquote death moves that you like mm-hmm. to talk about, what would those be, and how can our participants learn from that? Well, I'm gonna go. With, I'll come back to a, the, probably the number one death move, but uh, something we hear a lot about now is the uh, transition, starting the downswing, which is a critical part of the golf swing, and when you steep in the shaft when you get vertical coming down it's over you know you can shallow late or just come down over the top but it's it's a move that you just can't play with um i mean you can play but it's it's going to be 
it's going to be ugly, right? It's not going to be good. And, it, and we have to think of a way to get the shaft closer to in the slot, which the slot is an, is an angle that you can let the club freely release from. And that angle, a lot of times, when I'm teaching a lot of people, I kind of use a 45-degree angle, which is a lot flatter than uh, people think. You have only one club that's really at 45 degrees, which is your driver. But um, when, you, when you get vertical and steep, which comes usually from tension in your arms and using your hands right from the top of the, of the uh, backswing, you know you're dead. Mm -hmm. uh, the first all-time death move is tension and tightness at, at setup. And almost every single person that comes to my golf school, when we go through uh, grip pressure and arm mm -hmm. pressure and shoulder pressure, are starting out too tight. And even if they know it, you know, I'm checking there how they are. And, and Steve, I know you teach in a ton. Uh, it's hard for most amateurs to recognize or believe how light and relaxed the arms and the, or, or the hands and the wrists are in, in a, a tour player's setup. Yeah, what's, what would, how could you describe that? Or how could you portray that to people watching right now of what the proper grip pressure is and, yeah. and maybe a drill to, to help yeah. prevent them from coming over the top. And if you want to demonstrate, I see you have a club back there. Feel free to do that too. Yeah. I just got this new PhD driver. I hope it's better than the other ones. I've been there. It just came in right now. It's uh, yeah. I'll, maybe I'll, maybe I'll stand up and do it. Well, I, you know, I, I always heard those uh, abstract terms of how tight to hold a golf club, a tube of toothpaste or whatever, different things. But I started using a one to 10 scale a long time ago from one being as light as you can hold it to 10 being as tight as you can hold it. And I, and, uh, any of the people listening, I would have them actually hold the club up in a vertical position. So it's the club's balance. That's as light as you, uh, the golf club can be and hold it light and then gradually work two, three, four, five, five's the middle back down four, three, two, one back up to five, then six, mm -hmm. seven. And once we get up to eight, probably like we were on the first tee at Augusta, you know, <laughs> it's tough to hit a great shot. You know, you probably block it out to the right field. Um, and to be able to relax. And I, I always think that that's an amazing thing that the guys are able to do on Sunday after playing three great rounds, especially if you haven't won. We were talking about Keegan when he finally did win. Uh, I mean, actually, it wasn't finally. It was first year. But to be able to win in a playoff and to be able to relax and play on, play on the, playing with Tiger or McElroy on a weekend and, and being able to relax and let go. And that's, that's a rare mm -hmm. thing. That's why there are not too many great players. Uh, from the transition move up to the top, um, again, it's being able to let your arms be relaxed, not to, let me see if I can get in the picture there, but to get up here and to, you know, complete your turn and let your lower body lead. And if you're not tight at the top, the reaction of the club is in a minor way, like a baseball bat that flattens out, but in a minor way, just a little bit of a flattening. There's two planes in the golf mm -hmm. swing, the backswing plane and, and transition where the club should, should shallow out slightly. You don't have to have a gigantic shallow, but for a lot of people we teach, they have to feel like the club's really dropping behind them. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty mind blowing to show uh, the average person how, how much some of the players shallow the golf club in the, in the downswing. In your schools, do you do any physical tests 
to your students? Because I know the external forearm rotation, you know, if you're a right-handed player, the, the trail arm to be able to externally rotate yeah. really helps in that lowering the plane. Yeah, well, you know, I'm looking at everybody, and I don't have an actual test, but a lot of people mm -hmm. don't have a lot of wrist mobility, mm -hmm. and they certainly don't have that external mobility. As we get older, it's not so easy to be able to get that arm back a lot. And, yeah. You know, I've always been able, you know, pretty, I don't know if I'm that flexible, but I've been athletic. But a lot of people, you know, have been in the chair, they've been on the computer for 30 years, and, you know, they haven't been doing as much uh, being outside as we have, I do see a lot better. Uh, the younger guys definitely are better shape. There's more people working out, doing, getting it, going to a physical trainer. The guys on the PGA tour and the LPGA tour, it's amazing what they're doing almost every day. They're getting uh, massages. They're got the people working on them. And, and you know, it, it's certainly wasn't that way when I was playing, but, uh, staying in good condition, having a trainer, if you possibly can, is, is really helpful. And then having a trainer that knows something about golf, because I think you could definitely get strong the wrong way. You've got to keep your, your, your flexibility is, is paramount in golf and learning speed uh, and not getting you know, too bulked up up here in the, in the chest. Although Bryson DeChambeau is violating that theory. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's bucking that trend for sure, for sure. I, as you go through your book a little bit, I'm not going to give all of it away because I want to make sure everybody you know, gets the book. But I, let, let's talk, you talk about the backswing, the top of backswing position for a moment. Um, I think a lot about strong grip players versus neutral grip players and how that top of the backswing looks bowed wrist versus a cupped wrist, uh, you know, a, a Dustin Johnson versus a Freddie Couples, for example. What would you say, and maybe this is more so for strong grip players versus weak grip players, how, how would you, or what's your opinion on the longevity of those type of players or those variety of players? Uh, do you feel like a, a strong grip player is more prone to a, a lower back injury per se because they have to clear their body so early and so fast or what, what's your, what's your theory or opinion in that arena? Well, my theory is, and good news for a lot of people is that everyone has a different backswing on the PGA tour. So it's not the backswing. That's a secret. Mm -hmm. However, getting your body in, in a powerful position and getting your arms, the structure of your arms in a good position, we've seen the quite a few really good players with this bow like John Rom and and Dustin Johnson and and a few and Kepka. It seems like there's more of that nowadays than the more other way. Yeah. But not to the extreme. I know Dustin really well. He played a ton with my son. I know Dustin really well, but and I've talked to him, but it's pretty amazing to, to get that kind of bow. You haven't really seen that too much in the history of golf. Most guys in the PGA are very close to being flat wrist or a little bit of slight cup in the wrist. And that would be like 80% of the PGA tour. And then there's some that are still getting open that are mm -hmm. phenomenal players. Brandon, Brandon Grace comes to mind as a tremendous ball striker. He's got the toe straight down. He's very cupped at the top. I just can't think off the top of my mind a few others right now that, that do that. Certainly Freddie couples, of course, mm -hmm. but he, Freddie had the strong grip mm -hmm. and then, you know, really cupped it at the top. And then, they have that natural bowing on the downswing. 
Do you yeah. feel like that there's a different longevity in certain type of players like that? I mean, maybe why a guy like Paul Azinger or David Duvall maybe didn't progress and play the Champions Tours very much, or, you know, they're not getting involved with that. I know David's almost there, but those type of players are, are I, I don't know. I've just, I, I've got a theory about, about those players and they're, I, I'm really interested to see where Dustin Johnson falls in five or six years and, and how his, you know, how his back, cause he has to unwind as fast as anybody. Right. Well, Steve, as you know, these, some of these guys are superhuman <laughs> athletes. They're just gifted, phenomenal hand-eye coordination who can, you know, you, when you look at a player, you don't look at, you don't know if you're looking at someone with superhuman coordination or somebody with just great technique that can, you know, and that they can find that swing plane time after time. They're repetitive. And it's like a Trevino with a, with a really strong grip and a shut club face and hitting all fades. Bruce Litsky, we talked about a little bit earlier, who was a closed club face, all fades. And it kind of goes counteractive, counterintuitive to what we're thinking with the closed club face. You think they'd hit all hooks, but a number of those guys uh, that I'm talking about right there are fading the golf ball. So that takes, like you said, great rotation on the way through mm -hmm. and, and, and a lot of lead, you know, going through the golf shot as well. Do you, do you teach as far as a, a senior player, player maybe without as much flexibility, do you put them in a stronger or weaker grip depending on if they can rotate well or not? Yeah, I'm definitely getting it definitely towards stronger grip. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I get them more of a hands and arms swing and letting the club build centrifugal force instead of, you know, doing so much with the younger players, say Joaquin Newman, Neiman, or, uh, you know, some, or some of the other guys we see are just phenomenal moves through, but that takes a super flexible body to be able to do that. So you and I have to be able to teach players of, of all levels, but I have to teach a lot of average players and more with the old feet together and swing the golf club and, and get the end of the club, you know, a lot of focus on swinging the club head, a lot of Ernest Jones stuff, you know, go back a hundred years, but it works. Right. It, it brings me kind of to my next thing. Uh, I, I learned, I was fortunate enough to learn a lot from the great teacher, Bob Toski, and he always talked about simplicity being the answer to complexity. In the last section of your book, uh, regarding the finish of the golf swing, you talk, there's a great quote that you have from Jackie Burke, who you just talked about earlier, champions in Houston. Um, and Jackie said, point the club at the target in your backswing and finish with the shaft on your neck and you will be a decent player. Why yeah. do you think most golfers make the game more difficult than that? That's a great, that's Texas logic right there. And Jackie can always say things in a, in a beautiful way. And I've used that a lot of times. Point the club at the target, the top of your backswing, and finish on your neck. And I've worked on that finish on your neck with really every from Christy Kerr to Lexi Thompson, Keegan Bradley, to Gary Woodland, Matisse, you know, on and Peter Jacobs, and everybody. I try to get good players to as a great playing thought. Steve is going to a good finish for 18 straight holes is a. Sounds easy, but uh, a lot of times it's difficult to do that, to go to a good balanced finish on every shot you make. And, and that's a great playing thought that uh, even the best players in the world have used. And certainly I would recommend that for everybody listening on this, on this call. <laughs> well, let's, let's put it out to our participants out there. I know that somebody has to have a swing question, something 
that's bugged them, you know, or maybe it's something that they, how to get off the first tee and combat the jitters or whatever the case is. So, well, Jim, thank you for joining us. I've got a question for you. A question for you. Um, you talked a little bit about technology and video and uh, as someone who spends way too much time on Instagram and, and, you know, somehow got sucked down the rabbit hole of George Gankus. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, you know, he obviously um, talks about shallowing, shallowing the club a lot. Um, and, he, and I think he's a big believer in track man. And obviously, um, you know, you wouldn't recommend Matt Wolf's, you know, anyone to copy Matt Wolf's swing, but he gets it done. And so I guess the question is, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, on sort of the Gankus school, new school of, of, uh, of the swing? Yeah. Well, George has done a phenomenal job on Instagram and, and built a brand like Steve was talking about. It's just unbelievable what he's done. He has a, a gift with the language. Uh, he's, he talks in medical terms. Uh, it certainly sounds like he's very smart, you know, so that's a good thing. Um, He's got a, a swing theory that's really based, it seems to me, a lot off Matthew Wolf. Um, and Matthew can, you know, what I give George a lot of credit for, a great credit for, is that Matthew Wolf came to me, he didn't change his swing. So Matthew Wolf had that swing, which is a, an unusual swing. There have been a few players. Miller Barber comes to mind of a guy that took the club, you know, really shut outside his hands, very vertical, and then had a huge reroute um, and hit the ball. Um, and George talks um, a lot about rotation. A lot of things would be, to me, be difficult for an, an average person and certainly a little bit older person to do. But I give him a lot of credit for, uh, for what he's been able to do in, 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 the branding, in the branding side. I've seen things come and go, Will, my whole life of something gets really hot for a while and then kind of goes away and then something else comes back. So he's a big rotator, uh, likes getting the arms up, leaving the arms back and quiet, which is good, and, and uh, really using the ground. So we've had so much talk about ground forces uh, and, and uh, pressing down on the ground, and he shows a lot of drop. And then he talks about pronating the, the, the right leg the trail leg and, and, and twisting and inversion of the feet. And it gets really deep. As you know, like you said, the rabbit hole, man, you get going down there and there's so, there's so much complexity to the game of golf. There's, you know, golf, they say it golf's a lot like life, only golf's more complicated. You know, <laughs> we could just make this thing so unbelievably complicated. Um, but I do think he's got a lot of great, great ideas. And I think he's got a lot of people interested in, in the, in the technicalities of the golf swing. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's well, I've got, I've got a, another question and it's, it's somewhat related, I guess. Um, on these series of zoom calls, it's been interesting that there has been multiple guests who have talked about the 95, 96, 97 masters and how they are sort of representative of where the game kind of changed in that period. Um, in 95, you had Crenshaw win, and while Crenshaw worked with uh, Harvey Penick, it, it wasn't about necessarily, you know, positions in the golf swing or, you know, the, the technicalities of the golf swing. It was more about creating a result or, or sort of mentally preparing yourself. Uh, and then 96, obviously, was Faldo you know, taking over Greg Norman and, you know, having come broken down his swing and worked for 
with David Ledbetter and just really become mechan- you know, very mechanical, very detailed. And then 97 was, was Tiger. And at that point, you know, I think Tiger was, was, he obviously spent a lot of time working on the swing, but it was very natural and free flowing. And, right. and then Tiger sort of morphed into someone who got into the, the, the details of the swing, but also is one of the greatest field players of all time. And so um, I guess my question is, is that you, you've devoted your life to the golf swing. Um, and, you know, how, how do you, you know, you, you've been around great players. How do you sort of balance the, the minutia of the golf swing with the ability to feel and execute shots and, and, and play with some artistry? Yeah. Well, my thing is I spent time with Harvey Penick, um, and my position is that the golf positions create flow and, and balance and fluidity and a great looking golf swing and the ability to hit the ball effortlessly a long ways. But if you have bad positions, it's, it's going to look stuttered. It's going to look weak and it is going to be weak. So even Harvey Penick had certain, definitely certain things that he worked on with the players. And, and you could, you could see that. And that's kind of the way um, they weren't anything complex. He kept it simple. Uh, he didn't teach, he didn't tell you seven things to do in one lesson but he still had certain things that he taught uh, and, he, and, he, and that he believed in. And if you don't have something to believe in as a teacher, then you're just teaching what's in the latest golf magazine and what's on Instagram. And, you know, you're all over the place as a te- teacher. So I, I never wanted to be a, a teacher like that. I wanted to have these, these beliefs, but it's very interesting what you said about Ben, who is a free flowing player um, to Faldo and then to Tiger and then, to this explosion of distance. And Tiger, of course, could hit it forever with the Balata ball. But then as we you know, got into, after the Pro V1 came out in 2001, the, the, everything just hit. And then, and then everybody's trying to hit longer. Uh, even if you're 80 years old, people go, I want longer club and new clubs and new, the newest ball. And they, they come up with new, new stuff all the time. And so much more about Crackman now we've got. So there's a lot of things you you got to be careful about overloading. <laughs> I had a, the, a guy that's won a couple of Florida State amateurs was here yesterday and he was paralyzed. You know, he's been working on Trackman. He's got all these numbers in his head and, he, and he's just, you know, it, you can get paralyzed playing. You can get worse at golf, yeah. <laughs> right? I know I have. Uh, luckily, I can send Steve uh, a, a, a video of my swing 10 minutes before I tee off, and he sends it back, and he sorts me out. It's great. It's That's wonderful. good. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Uh, glad to know I helped somebody. That's good. That's really good. Uh, <laughs> uh, any any questions out there at all for from anybody? Jim, I have a question for you. Thank you for um... – Thank you for that. You talked about being relaxed on the first tee. What do you talk about on the eighth, ninth, and tenth tee when you tighten up mid-round? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, want, I want to clarify relaxed because you can be nervous and you can be a little tense. But, you know, let's, let's say on the eighth, ninth, and tenth, that means maybe you're having a really bad round. Sometimes when you're out in the middle of a bad round and you give up, you, all, you immediately start playing better, which is a weird deal. And, and I, I think that what I talk to players about is when do you play your best? So some people play good when they feel tense. They got a lot of, not too many people, but they feel like they focus in better and, they, and they're a little more tuned in. And then other players, like with Brad Faxon was here today and we were talking about putting with this you know, young, really top player in the United States about 
really ratcheting down the expectations, really ratcheting down how tight he is over putts and trying not to try too hard. I think Steve Scott would agree that our main thing is, is trying too hard. And I think most amateur golfers are the same way, especially if you've got a good round going. It's really hard not to get yourself ahead and say, okay, if I can just make two bogeys and all pars, I'll have the best round of my life, or I'm going to shoot a good score, or, or I'm two up in my match. Now I'm just going to play safe instead of just playing the way you were playing. It's, it's a mental uh, challenge out there for all golfers. And uh, uh, it's getting yourself in the, in, in the right frame of mind. And, you know, we start getting these, all these peripheral thoughts going and we got to bring ourselves back to the moment, back to this, this shot, back to your procedure. And we would say your pre-shot routine and, and making that very important to how you walk into the ball each time and not, it doesn't matter if you're on eight, nine or 10 or 16, 17 or 18 or two, four and five, whatever, you know, you, you got to make all, uh, Venturi told me that all shots, if you could, should be the same. The, the fourth shot of the first round and the 17th hole in the last round, he, that that's something he, that he kind of took away from Byron Nelson and, and Hogan, two of the greatest players of all time, is to stay in the moment and stay in, in one shot at a time, which we've all heard, but it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge to do that. Yeah, thanks for your time this afternoon. Um, you know, I had a round this weekend where I, I completely lost it. I was going to ask you about how to bring it back together, and I guess it comes down to having a, uh, a consistent... Um, Sometimes you can't bring it back together. That's what I... Yeah, and, and that happened, and I guess I don't have a consistent uh, uh, swing though when I'm up there. But I do have another question. You know, I can't stay on the range anymore for an hour and a half, two hours, and just, you know, be balls forever. So, you know, just to practice efficiently, you know, do you recommend, how, how do you recommend to do that? Use many clubs, one club, stay with the longer clubs. I'm curious what your recommendation is to kind I, of focus the practice. I think that's a great question. I, I see really terrible practice. I know at Doral, we have 800 players a day to see them down on the range. And then the Biltmore now, we have a big range with a lot of just, you know, average players. They just unbelievable bad practice habits. But I, I think when you, when you, go out to the range to get yourself uh, with a, a good grip, you know, get your hands on the club, feel the weight of the golf club, make some practice swings. And then what I see good players do is, is hit quite a few little small shots, wedge shots, try to sync up your hands, elbows, shoulders, hips, arms, try to get hitting those small shots really uh, consistently, maybe at 30, 40, 50, 60 yard shots, for me, and maybe that would last five to 10 minutes total and then start working your way up from there. I also used to watch Jack Nicholas practice and he put it on a tee almost all the time when I watched him practice and just to work on his swing, to work on the bottom of his swing. We talked about Harvey Pennick and Hart, one of Harvey's biggest things was to clip the tee, you know, to make sure he clipped the tee. We have longer tees now, but if you had a shorter tee, he'd want you to clip the tee out of the ground. And then you could see if your divot was too far in front, if you were hitting behind it. Another good thing is to make a line on the ground. You can, you can put it with a T or with the edge of your foot and watch where your divot is and for a few practice swings and you know, see if you're hitting the ground in the right spot and not get into, into the deep clubs too fast into your practice and maybe make a, 
you know, a 30 minute practice session, which is really about what I see the tour players at a tour event, really they're before they play, that's about it. And they'll putt for 15 minutes and chip a little bit and then maybe 30 minutes of ball striking. A lot of that, a lot of good practice swings, get the feel of the club. Most people don't like doing practice swings, but you know, I'm, I'm really work on a person's practice swing. I have them use the shadow on the ground to watch your head movement, you know, because when you're, when I'm thinking, when you're really hitting it bad, I go to two things. Is your head moving too much? And are you too tight with your grip pressure? So, so when I'm really bad, I said, wait a minute, let me just get back to a couple simple things. Maybe the eye, maybe I'd add a little eye contact to that, but, um, those things would generally get you back on track and then work your way up. Um, I wouldn't hit a ton of drivers, um, but if, you know, finish off, hopefully hit a few good drivers and, and then, and then leave, go chip and putt. I think we've got one, one other question before we wrap it up. I've got a question for Jim for his last question. So I have an interesting story. I was up at Fisher's Island uh, last year and I found this little name drop. Oh, yeah, I thought I found this little post-it note on the green that somebody dropped from their bag and it said, see it, feel it, commit to it, do it, affirm. So, Jim, what's the very last thing that goes through your head when you hit the club? Well, I wish that was it that was all the time. A few times in my life, that's been it where you see it, feel it. That's, a you know, from a top sports psychologist, you know, that's a, that's really what they're trying to get you to do to stop thinking too much about all the mechanical issues and the, body positions that you need to be in. Uh, when you teach, when Steve and I teach, we've got to, you know, correct things. We've got to get people set up good first into a good, good setup position and then be able to, you know, make a good, some kind of good motion in their backswing to, to get into a good spot where you can hit it and get the club in a good spot where you can hit it. Um, and then this transition move we've talked about, we've got to learn to do that. But once you get on the golf course and you're playing in a tournament, uh, we talked about that first tee shot at Augusta, you know, you're, you're not thinking of anything. Um, just trying to make contact really and trying to make a, a, a good swing. I think trying to go to that good finish is a really good thing. Trying to swing the club with good tempo and timing because a lot of us are trying to hit too hard. That's such a big part of teaching and Instagram and all of, you know, trying to hit it further. But with a lot of teaching that I do, I'm trying to work on a rhythm and a swing and, and getting a flow to a golf swing. And I think, you know, the Jackie Burke thing, I would leave it with that, you know, point that club at the target or close to it and go to a complete finish, put the club on your neck, which means your arms have to be relaxed is uh, those are, that's, that's great stuff for going out to play. That's great, Jim. No, we, we really appreciate your time today. Great book here. Really enjoyed reading through this, and I'm going to keep flipping through it a lot more. Build Your Swing, Position Teaching in the Modern Age. Go get it. Uh, where, else, where else can we find you? If we wanted to take a lesson from you, how would we do that? Well, um, I, all my things for this summer are canceled. Uh, all my things I was supposed to do. I'm down in Miami, and I'm here most of the year. We're at the Biltmore Hotel. I've got another school on the beach at Miami Beach Golf Club in South Beach. And then I've got a few other locations, but any easy to find me at jimmcclain.com. And I really appreciate Steve having me on here. And I hope to see you uh, sometime, uh, maybe get down next winter and, and visit, I hope. Thanks for having me. 
Well, we, we can't thank you enough, Jim.